Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yuel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Inslicht. Mickey, how's it going today? I can't say how incredibly excited I am because um, we've got none other than uh, Joe Henrik uh, on the show with us today. And Joe has been someone who's been, uh, you know, very near the top of our list of invitees for, I think, like the, the entire two years we've been doing this show. But we just never bothered to reach out, Joe. I'm not sure why. Um, but we're grateful that, you, that, that you've uh, agreed to, uh, to come uh, visit us today. So let me just give you a, a, just a brief, uh, brief introduction. So, uh, Joe Henrik is a professor uh, and chair of the Department of Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. Uh, Joe wears uh, many hats. Um, he got his BA in anthropology, and I also learned uh, in aerospace engineering uh, from uh, Notre Dame uh, University in 1991. He got his MA and PhD in anthropology from UCLA in 1999, um, was a professor at Emory University uh, from 2002 to 2007, and uh, then spent a nice, you know, decade uh, at uh, UBC, where he was a professor in the departments of psychology and economics. Um, Joe is like, I mean, you look at his CV, it's just like a you know, long, long list of awards. I won't bore, bore you all with them, just to name a couple of highlights, a Fulbright Scholarship, Canada Research Chair, a Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers, uh, Killam Research Prize, I think more than one, um, Canadian Institute for Advanced Study Fellow, uh, Wegner Theoretical Innovation Prize. I could literally go on and on and on. But I just want to note one other thing, which is kind of humorous. Um, tell me, Joe, if you find it humorous. Um, so in 2010, there was an article published uh, kind of looking at the uh, bibliometrics of various social psychologists, uh, you know, in North America. And again, Joe is a, a trained anthropologist. Uh, at the time, he was appointed to a department of psychology and economics. And despite not being a psychologist or social psychologist, Joe was found, was at the time the twelfth most highly cited social psychologist, age you know based on age and seniority, uh, in the world in two thousand and ten. So uh, that's an awesome feat to to, to be so highly cited, uh, despite not being a psychologist. So um, anyhow, uh, welcome to the show, Joe. Uh, thank you so much for for being here. Yeah, it's great to be with you guys. Looking forward to chatting. Yeah. So did you find that humorous that, uh, you know, being named? Well, it was uh, just, it was kind of a nice surprise. And I think it raised me in the esteem of my colleagues because, you know, I, suddenly I was in their their pool, swimming in their pool, and they could see that I was making contributions. So that was a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I was, you know, certainly well-deserved. And, and, and now I think you're a household name among uh, psychologists. Absolutely. Um, so before we get into our, you know, uh, hard-hitting uh, questions, uh, this is a show uh, that's partly inspired uh, and fueled by beer. So uh, I, I think you've got some beer in front of you there, Joe. So what, uh, what are you drinking today? Well, this evening I'm enjoying a Whale's Tail Pale Ale from Cisco Breweries in Nantucket. So local Massachusetts thing. All right, nice. Uh, you well? Uh, well, I'm mildly violating the rules by drinking bourbon instead of beer. Uh, this is a new Riff single barrel that's a newish distillery uh, in Kentucky, although in sort of a non-traditional part of Kentucky for bourbon production. It's in Newport, which is in the in the north, right across the border from Cincinnati. Um, and this is like uh, 115 proof, so I, I'm going to... I'm finishing the bottle. That's the promise I'm making you. <laughs> so you're going to take like the lead in questioning towards the end, right? That's right. Yeah, I'm just going to monologue. Actually, that's going to be the last half hour. 
um, so I've got a uh, my favorite uh, brewer, which I've been uh, you know buying their beer a lot lately. Uh, this is my neighborhood. Uh, this is a Bellwood Brewery. Um, it's a Jelly King, which is a sour. This is a mango and passion fruit sour, uh, 5.6% alcohol by volume, a dry hopped sour. So uh, looking forward to it. So uh, cheers, gentlemen. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. So, Joe, um, Mickey alluded already a bit to your kind of uh, unusual academic background, I guess, in a way. First of all, that you were a dual major in aerospace engineering and anthropology, which I imagine that there were not many of those that year. Um, and then that you've had kind of a multidisciplinary path to, to get where you are. So I guess uh, something that our listeners like to hear about a lot is how people actually got to where they are and how they decided to to do what they ended up doing. So I wonder if you could give us the kind of short version of how that happened, how you went from uh, aerospace engineering um, to biology at Harvard. Well, I um, it's a bit of a long trip, but to give you the short version, uh, when I was an undergraduate at Notre Dame, I was studying aerospace engineering and I took some classes in anthropology and I was really, I really enjoyed them and it was pretty exciting. But I didn't want to just abandon the engineering to start doing the anthropology. But at Notre Dame, they had a dual degree program. So I actually went for five years and had two separate diplomas. And uh, at the end of my last year, when I was finishing both degrees, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So at one point, I had a stack of graduate school applications for both space propulsion uh, in aero and then uh, anthropology. And I figured it didn't make sense to send out these 20 applications to two different kinds of approaches. So I, uh, I just took a job and did two years of aerospace engineering. I lived in Washington, DC. I worked at an undisclosed location in Northern Virginia and uh, did, did aerospace for a few years. And during that time, I just did a lot of reflection, tried to figure out what I wanted to do and uh, eventually quit my job and drove to California, enrolled at UCLA and did anthro. Uh, so that was kind of the first hurdle. But then when I got into anthropology, it wasn't quite what I hoped for. At that point in kind of intellectual history, anthropology had taken or been going down an alley of postmodernism and anti-scientism and anti-quantification. You know, I was an engineer. I wanted to figure stuff out. Uh, so I, you know, I started doing field work and I was kind of plugging along and I was getting a bit discouraged. And I, but then I gradually began to work with someone named Rob Boyd learn more about evolutionary anthropology and eventually evolutionary psychology and, and related fields and moved in that direction. And that was a big, important change for me. And then I found, you know, colleagues who had shared interests and I didn't feel so lonely. So I ended up staying in, although there were times when I was, I was thinking about jumping out and going back to engineering. Um, but one thing about making that change was uh, I wasn't finding anthropology very satisfying in terms of explaining things and providing theory. So I started reading pretty widely, and that's when I started reading psychologists. Kahneman and Tversky were on my list. Uh, Eleanor Ostrom was on that list. Um, early behavioral economics, people like Colin Kammerer. And, uh, and then, you know, so by that point in graduate school, I was already kind of reading pretty widely. And by the end of uh, my PhD, I was actually kind of looking for jobs. I mean, there's not very many jobs in anthro. So I was looking in many places. My first job was in a business school in Michigan. So I was there for three years in a Society of Scholars program. And that's when I ended up meeting with, uh, with Dick Nesbitt. And I was going to his labs and learning about cultural psychology, which I didn't know about. Uh, ended up using some of his uh, experimental tools in, in my field site in Chile. Um, 
And but then I ended up getting a job in anthropology. So I was in anthropology at Emory for a few years. Actually, I was hired as a cultural anthropologist. So it was a completely unexpected event. Uh, and after that, I got recruited to the University of British Columbia. And, and it's interesting because they they started to put me in anthropology, but the anthropologists objected fiercely. They didn't want any part of me, but the psychologists thought I was I was acceptable. Um, and then so did the economists. So I ended up splitting a position between those two departments. And then I was there for almost 10 years and then uh, moved to Harvard in human evolutionary biology. Cool. Well, that that's a really just fascinating biography. And I hope we'll be able to get more into what your experience has been in these different disciplines. But uh, just, you know, before we move on to be clear, your alternative to doing this was literally be a rocket scientist. Is that correct? Right. That Yes, that's the <laughs> Okay, just making sure. <laughs> um, actually, I, I wonder if we just, I just follow up a tiny bit. Um, so uh, you mentioned that anthropology at the time was uh, inhospitable to someone was, uh, who was more quantitatively uh, minded. Um, what's the state of anthropology today? That's a good question. And I don't think uh, they've gotten, I feel like my contact with the field now is people are less kind of strongly anti-science, uh, strongly postmodern, and, and only willing to entertain interpretive disciplines a little bit more open methodologically. Uh, but I think that's because the, those other avenues turned out to be dead ends, intellectual dead ends. They don't go anywhere. Um, so now I feel like the field's a little lost and kind of a lot of anthropologists are casting about. Some of them end up doing essentially politics. Uh, so yeah, I, so I think it's an opening. You know, This is a, an opportunity for anthropology to take new directions. Okay. Um, all right. So we have like, I mean, you've covered so much ground um, and I, I feel there's so much we can talk with you about. Um, and I, perhaps we can start with, uh, uh, I think you're, you're well-known for many things, but, but perhaps we can start with one thing that you're very, very well-known for, and that is um, you and your colleagues at UBC at the time wrote a paper where you, you described something called uh, the weird person problem. And by, you know, the, you, used the, you kind of invented this acronym WEIRD, uh, Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, Democratic. Um, and you, you, you said it was a problem for, you know, for the behavioral sciences writ large, maybe for psychology specifically. Um, so what if you could tell us uh, a little bit about, you know, you know, what are weird people and why is it a problem? Why is it a problem that we study or many of us focus uh, on Western, uh, you know, populations? So, uh, well, when we came up with the acronym WEIRD, uh, my colleagues Arnor and Zion and Steve Heine, social and, and cultural psychologists, we had put our heads together and basically over lunch and had come to the conclusion that in each of our own areas of expertise, uh, you know, whenever we had more than one population, the Western populations, the, the sort of at, at the time, it was mostly undergraduates that were being studied by psychologists and other behavioral economics were unusual in a kind of global perspective. So when we assembled this, this study, it was a bit of a challenge. Uh, you know, I, th I thought of it as a methodological, methodological challenge at the time in that this, the populations that were being most studied by psychologists turn out to not just be one population along many or a modal population, but they were actually, in many cases, the, an extreme population. So you were getting uh, not a very central picture of, of human psychological variation or aspects of human psychology. And one of the things that I noticed coming into the field is that it was very easy to move between my samples of undergraduates or my samples of Americans to talking about people. Uh, so if you look at psychology textbooks, it's, it's people. People do this, people do that. Um, and it, it was looking like, actually, that's a bit of a more complicated story. Um, 
but so but, so what's okay so i mean what's the problem with that so uh i, I you know i'm a social psychologist uh i also dabble in uh cognitive psychology and uh, neuroscience and you know maybe i could buy your argument uh about you know if i'm really truly interested in cultural products uh social groups maybe attitudes sure i want to sample widely but if i'm studying something like memory or attention um vision um is there still a weird person problem there is that is that is that a, is that a problem in your estimation yeah i mean uh i don't think there's much question that this uh goes to all these kind of domains so there's this kind of folk model i think in psychology and elsewhere that there are certain core domains which we know we expect to be uninfluenced by psychology and uh other domains which we expect to be kind of cultural content and what we found time after time now for a decade is that nobody can tell me what those core domains are. So you mentioned attention, can find lots of cultural variation. Attention memory, lots of cultural variation. Uh, visual perception, so you just take something like the Muller-Lyer illusion, which is the textbook standard for a re uh, impenetrable, uh, reliably developing feature of the human visual system. It turns out that hunter-gatherers don't have it. And you know this, the Western societies are at the extreme end of the distribution because we grow up in a world of carpentered corners and 90 degree angles. Our visual system calibrates to the visual environments we inhabit. It's not it's not shocking, but it does mean that that's not something that comes built into the genes. It's something that reliably calibrates to your visual visual environment. So this uh, paper is obviously really well known. Um, widely cited. How much do you think has changed in how the field thinks about this stuff since it came out? Well, I think, I mean, the one thing we can say is that it's kind of put this question uh, on people's radar, on psychologists' radar. Um, soon after our paper came out, the replication crisis hit. And I think that actually kind of stifled our, uh, took some momentum out of our sales because people switched over to trying to solve the replication crisis and they stopped worrying about this kind of cultural variation stuff, which seemed, which seemed secondary. If your experiments with undergraduates won't replicate, taking stuff on the road uh, seems to make less sense. So, that, so the pri we lost the priority there. Um, I do see a lot of efforts now to, to kind of sample more diversely, test theories about cultural variation and whatnot. But even with all the stuff I see, you know, reviewing grant proposals and, and papers and stuff in general science journals, it still doesn't impact the stats in psychology. So there's been a couple of reviews of the percentages of Western subjects in, say, psych science or in the developmental journals, for example. And it's still 95 percent, 92 percent numbers like that. Uh, so maybe a small, small decline. But right. So I was going to say, like, my um just intuitive impression is if I open the latest issue of JPSB or psych science, it's almost all weird subjects, right? And yet at the same time, this is something that like, uh, I don't know, in a weird way, like everybody knows about it. I mean, researchers and and sort of pay lip service to like, yeah, this is a big problem. And then it's like, kind of like, well, what are you going to do? You know? Yeah. And so uh, two notes on that. One is that, you know, with the replication crisis, it changed the incentive structure in psychology even more. And it caused... Uh, people needed big samples, and the place you could get big samples was the internet. And trying to do cross-cultural work and get big samples, you're just kind of, you know, you're redoubling the demands on, on researchers, and especially in psychology, unlike other disciplines. You know, as a young, as a student, grad student, young professor, you got to put out papers, right? you got to, 
I mean, compared to economics, it's like a treadmill of papers. You got to have, you know, many papers. Economists can get tenure with one paper, one published paper in a good journal. So yeah, so it's just a different world. And, and I think that pressure means that, okay, I got to run studies. I got to, I got to put stuff out. Economists are lazy is what I'm concluding here. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I guess that's one way to look at it. I mean, it's it's interesting that you um, see the the replication crisis is sort of taking the wind out of the sails a bit of of people's like desire to um, kind of do better with cross cultural generality. Because in a different way, you might think, well, if we're at a place where we're questioning the way that things always have been done. That's sort of the exact right time to tell people, oh, you have to do something radically different. But it seems like that's not really right. how it came up. Yeah, I mean, it was a chance to kind of reform the approach. So you could imagine a policy where we're going to turn down the pressure on junior people so that they can take time to test their stuff across societies or um, get the kind of samples they need without relying only on the Internet. So we could say you could only we only want to see your six best papers come tenure time. And then you kind of write the six best papers you can possibly write instead of writing the best 30 papers or whatever the current number is these days. Yeah, that's a proposal that I've heard before. I think uh, Yuri Simonson has advocated for something like that. But he said best three. So, uh, you know. Isn't he an economist? No, nah, he's a... Oh, yeah, actually. There you go. <laughs> Lazy. <laughs> um, so uh, kind of a follow-up to this uh, is um, what do you make of... You know, these um, multi-site uh, international collaborations whereby there are there seem to be labs all around the world that are trying to, in, in many cases, replicate some known findings or thought to be known findings. Um, but they're still, I think, more or less using, I think, college samples, but they might be college samples from, you know, not just U.S. and Canada and Europe, but in Asia, maybe Africa, maybe South America. Um, in your estimation, is that, does that, does that solve some of the problems or is that just kind of yeah, the beginning? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a real pluralist on all this stuff. So I think that that's a way to get some interesting variation could be ideal for testing some kinds of hypotheses. Um, I do think, though, like there should be some part of psychology that's trying to do to get out into the world. So getting beyond the universities and the Internet, because you want to be able to study people in communities, right? People live in communities. They interact in social networks. So, when you know, when we do field work, we live in the village. We run experiments on the people, the kind that psychologists run. But we also measure their social networks. We study their children. Uh, and so, you know, I'd like to think that if that could be done at a larger scale, we could really get some insight. So if we find this cultural variation between these populations, what is it that's happening to children, say, as they're growing up, that's causing them to think very differently when, when they get to become adults? And it's only with kind of a community-based approach that uh, we could really get it. Uh, well, I think it would elevate our ability to get these questions. One more thing on this topic, and that is, um, have you heard as a kind of, uh, let's say, uh, response to this, you know, your, your, your discussion of the weird person problem, the response to something like, well, I'm just describing weird people. And I, so maybe I shouldn't talk about people. I shouldn't say people, capital P. I'm talking about Westerners. And so what? So psychology is a study of Westerners. I'm okay with that. Like, what do you think? Yeah. So I think that that, uh, that is a sensible response. So one of the things we've said, um, Steve R and I have said that, you know, all you, it, it would be, a, it would be a good discipline when people write an article to think about how far can I generalize this finding? 
And I don't know if we're going to talk about theory later, but in order to be able to say how far your findings are going to generalize, you need a theory. Because, you know, is it going to apply to, uh, so if you say I'm studying Westerners, is it going to apply to poor people? Is it going to apply to people of different uh, ethnic, ethnic backgrounds who live in the U.S.? Uh, is it going to apply to second generation immigrants? So it, some things will, some things won't, right? So uh, I think you need a theory to be able to say how far it's going to generalize. I want to let you, you know, talk about, you know, your views, especially your paper, your paper with uh, Michael uh, Muthu Krishna um, on theory. Um, but maybe before we get there, uh, you've already spoken about it a little bit, but I, I wonder if you can tell me what your thoughts are on a the replication crisis and, and, and the responses thus far to um, to kind of this crisis of confidence that we've had. It's almost been a decade now that we've been kind of wringing our hands. Um, so, yeah, what are your thoughts on kind of the reforms that have been proposed? Well, I mean, I think uh, a lot of the reforms make make good sense. I mean, kind of some of the statistical things, some of the larger samples, uh, the practices. So one of the things that struck me, so I, I didn't have any background in psychology, but I just found myself in a psychology department hanging out with social psychologists. And I remember just being struck repeatedly, just chatting with colleagues who are great scientists uh, and they would say something like, oh, that experiment didn't work, so we're trying it this other way. And the stuff that didn't work would just vanish, right? It'd just be into the circular file. And I'm like, isn't that a problem? I mean, isn't that, like, I took statistics. That's a problem. Uh, but it just, people, it would bounce off people. When I'd, when I'd roll that out at lunch, they'd be like, well, I don't know. <laughs> then things would move on, right? Um, so, so, yeah, so I felt like, yeah, the, it, was, it wasn't too surprising to me when this stuff started to happen. So, um, I think things like pre-registration, all that can help. But the, the point that Michael Muthu Krishnan and I make in that paper is that a lot of this helps if you have a cumulative framework, scientific framework. So if, a, if, a, if you have a theory that predicts something and the result comes out the other way, that's potentially a big deal. And so you can publish a null result because the theory said it was supposed to be a positive result. And that theory is built out of this other theory, which says that that theory should work. And if that doesn't work, then we have potential ramifications down the line. Um, so that makes a, a, a lack of finding potentially be significant. It allows you to publish null results and stuff. It tells you uh, where to kind of check. So that one didn't work. So, you know, let's work more on that. Uh, so we make the case that psychology would benefit from having a larger cumulative framework. One of the things coming into psychology is that, you know, I was being exposed to economics. My background is engineering, natural sciences, and I've been studying evolutionary biology. And if you look at a biology textbook, it, you know, each chapter is kind of built off sort of basic Darwinian principles. Now we're going to look at sexual selection. And then, you know, there's a bunch of things you can go down now. We're going to look at communication. Well, how should animals communicate given they've been selected for? Um, but when you go into a social psych textbook, it's like a potpourri of the history of the field's findings. There's nothing that unifies chapter three with chapter two with, you know, chapter eight. Uh, and so that was striking to me. And I mean, you know, it could be that, that psychology is just that sort of a pre-Darwinian state of where biology was before Darwin. And that's, that's maybe that's fine, but we should be actively searching for those, those unifying frameworks. Right. So what would a unifying framework like that look like? Like, are there any plausible candidates today or... Well, I mean, what I mean, so, you know, behind the scenes, of course, Michael and I have an idea about what we think that should look like. And so we laid out what we gene culture, co-evolutionary theory or dual inheritance theory. 
And we showed how, you know, you can use mathematical models and you can make predictions about something like conformity, which is something that social psychologists are interested in. It suggests there are different kinds of conformities. It tells you how the variables should be related. You can then actually fit a, a formal model to measure how conformist people are going to be. Um, so, I mean, so that was the kind of context we gave. So we think a kind of extended version of evolutionary theory is, provides an obvious uh, cumulative framework. Yeah, so lots of people seem to connect the need for um, kind of a better theoretical framework to formalizing models in a mathematical way, which is something that you know typically in psychology, at least in social psychology, is, is not the norm, right? We have these verbal theories and we say something along the lines of it should be higher here than there, right? And, and, and that's as specific as the predictions get. So do you, in your view, is that, is that an essential part of making theory better that it be uh, formalized as a mathematical model? Or is that just uh, kind of incidentally, oh, it happens that the, this thing we proposed is also you can formalize it mathematically? Yeah. So I think that you should think of uh, formalizing as a mental prosthesis that helps you think more clearly about theory. So it doesn't mean you can't have a verbal theory that you haven't yet formalized. Um, or that maybe some things are too hard to formalize. We don't know how to formalize it. Uh, but you should always be looking for ways to do it and do it whenever possible. Uh, one of the things that can facilitate that, and this is something else that struck me when I went into psychology, is there are no theoretical psychologists. And I, I mean that in the sense that someone whose only job is to think about how to build psychology, or there's maybe a couple, but very few, uh, to think about how to build these kinds of models of, of psychology. Whereas you go into an economics department, and there's a whole group of economic theorists whose whole job is to write down these models. You go into evolutionary biology, there's mathematical evolutionary biologists who don't go out in the field, they don't study animals, they just uh, try to build the models. Um, same thing's true, obviously, in physics and, and the natural sciences. So maybe there's room in psychology for a, a theoretical psychologist as a as a thing to be. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because I I feel that often when people say, "Oh, this person is an amazing theoretician," it means like has insightful ideas or is a good storyteller or something. It doesn't mean mathematical formalism. Yeah, arguably. You could describe Amos Tversky that way, right? His background obviously was in mathematical psychology. Um, but yeah, you're right that it's not, this is not a common thing to be for us. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've, we've kind of touched a little bit on uh, your your specialty, uh, you know, uh, culture, gene, coevolution, And I think our, our, our listeners would be really, you know, uh, curious to, to learn more about that. And, and I say this just because... Um, Maybe a few years ago, when I, you know, I, you know, I, I, you know, I went to grad school, and I also learned a little bit about evolutionary psychology, and it seemed like there was just one approach. Um, it was called evolutionary psychology, dominated by people like John Tooby, Lita Cosmides, David Buss, maybe even St Steven Pinker. I'm not sure, um, but only relatively recently have I learned that there are actually multiple. Uh, multiple approaches to evolution uh, of human behavior, uh, and, and gene culture coevolution is one of them. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about you know what this approach is and how it contrasts with you know so-called or classic you know uh, uh, evolutionary psychology. Yeah. Well, let me just uh, say say quickly that if you look at the broader sort of evolutionary community, 
uh, of people who apply evolutionary theory to think about humans, there's actually three kinds. There's the evolutionary psychologists that you probably learned about, Tubi and Cosmides are the quintessential examples. Um, there's the gene culture uh, co-evolutionary psychology, which I'll tell you about in a second. And then there's also something called the behavioral ecologists, the human behavioral ecologists. And they're very much applying models developed for thinking about um, non-humans, which take the phenotypic gambit. So they're basically behavioralists, right? So they throw out the uh, psychology and say, we're going to go directly from fitness maximization to behavior, skipping all the wet stuff. Um, and so the state of the world in about 2001 is these three are active, separate, and arguing subdisciplines. Now, I think the lines have become much blurrier. Uh, lots of the uh, human behavioral ecologists have moved over and, and gotten into both of the other two fields, and it's a lot messier now, which I think is a good thing. Um, so the ideas of gene culture co-evolution are kind of twofold. One is that a lot of what, a lot of human genetic evolution has been shaped by cultural evolution. So in my book, The Secret of Our Success, I make the case that, you know, we know some obvious ones like um, the size of our stomachs and our teeth, uh, the length of our intestines has been shaped by knowledge of fire and cooking. So we cook our food, we break it down, that denatures the proteins. So there's all this external digestion that cooking does. It means we don't need a lot of gut tissue. We can get rid of part of our colon, smaller teeth. So our bodies respond to the presence of cooking by re reallocating energy, essentially. Um, so I make the case, and lots of other people have made the case, that this same cultural evolutionary process has also shaped our minds. So you get a specialized cognition for thinking about tools, uh, for acquiring information, for learning from others. Uh, for thinking about social groups, um, sort of ethnic groups or tribal groups, things like that. Um, and so the, the main difference there with the canonical approaches to evolutionary psychology would be thinking about a gene culture co-evolutionary process in some cases. It doesn't mean that there weren't, you know, things that happened prior to gene culture co-evolution that are relevant to apes. So inbreeding aversion, kinship, things like that we would expect to find in non-human apes as well as in humans. But there's this other thing going on in humans that's particularly interesting. Um, and then the other, one of the other ideas is rather than saying there are things humans learn and then there's human nature, there's the evolved cognition, we want to say that learning is a product of, of evolution, a product of natural selection. And so we can theorize all of learned behavior by thinking about what are the mechanisms, what are the, the adaptive learning mechanisms that allow people to acquire a particular psychology or a certain kind of tool or adapt to navigating an institutional environment that has certain costs and benefits, that kind of thing. Um, so as you're speaking, um, and maybe this is a naive take, um, you know, having read, you know, uh, you know, Picker's Blank Slate, uh, Dawkins, uh, The Sophist Gene, um, they make a big deal out of what they call, or many people call, um, group selection. Um, and again, a naive take uh, might be that you are potentially arguing that we are selected for at, at the level of the group. Um, but my understanding is that, you know, there are some kind of... Um, uh, Dawkins and Pink are, you know, very strict adherence to like, you cannot think, uh, along group selection terms. But there are other people, uh, like David Sloan Wilson, maybe yourself, I'm not sure, who permit it. So am I, am I right in thinking that, you know, this approach, um, it does have group selection elements? And if so, what are, what are your, your responses to, uh, the critics of that approach? Sure. So, um, I, the first, the first thing to understand is a lot of times people, uh, they think that the cultural evolutionary part of the story is all group selection. 
That's just part of the story and potentially a small part. So the argument I just gave you about fire and cooking shaping our intestines has no group selection in it at all. It's just cultural trait of learning to cook that's adaptive. And then once you acquire it, their genes, there's different selection pressures on your genes. And so there's probably lots of features of gene culture coevolution that don't have any of the groupers content. What people like me have argued that, you know, my colleague Steve Pinker might not agree with is that uh, we've made the case simultaneously that we think genetic group selection is unlikely. And the main reason for that is because there's gene flow between human groups. So if you think, you know, you look at hunter-gatherer societies, they have lots of warfare, warfare, you kill all the men, take the women, that creates massive gene flow between the two groups. They're going to be genetically indistinguishable. You can't get any groups, genetic group selection going. So in that case, I agree with Steve. But if you move over to cultural evolution, culture builds institutions and rituals where if you deviate, you get punished or sanctioned. Uh, you have institutions. There it's a group level phenomenon. Some institutions, it does, it's not even all contained in a single person's head. So if you know how to do one thing, I know how to do another thing. We have two different jobs. We get together. Our group does it. That's a feature of our group. It's all based on information stored in our heads, but it's not stored in any one of our heads. So that creates a group level that can only be described as a group level institution. And then my group that might have segmentary lineages or age sets or some of these institutions that small scale societies have might expand and proliferate at the expense of groups that don't have that. And that means that if we want to account for the distribution of people adhering to age sets or clans or something like that, um, then we have to look at the effect of this trait on competition among populations. I think where one of the confusions comes in is that uh, there's an there's an aversion of group selection, especially with genes, where there's a free rider problem. So you're trying to do something cooperative, and there's someone who can free ride, not pay the cost, but still get the benefits. But in the kinds of institutions I'm talking about, if you if you free ride, you get punished, or you get a bad reputation, or something. So there's a stable state at which everyone has to do it, and any de so it's it's a Nash equilibrium, is what economists would call it. But another group is at a different equ equilibrium. That's not as good for the group and not as cooperative. So those two fight. But within the group, any deviant gets penalized. So it doesn't have any of the problems that people are normally concerned about for the genetic group selection criticisms. Does, uh, what does your colleague uh, Stephen Baker think of, of this version of, of selection, group selection? The only uh, I should have I should have already run this by him, but I've never actually had this exact discussion with him. He, he did write an, a piece on this web on his literary agent's website called Edge. And uh, in that, he wrote, a, he wrote a piece on it. I wrote a commentary along with lots of other people. And to mine, he said, um, well, Henrik's explanation is just basically culture history. And we already have culture history, so we don't need any of this cultural group selection stuff. And my response is, is, is my book that's coming out in September, uh, which is what history looks like if you do it with cultural evolution. And, and cultural group selection. Well, wow, that's a that's a beautiful segue. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I feel like you've you've shown us up. We're supposed to be the people who know how to podcast, and here you are setting up the next <laughs> question. Would you like to tell us about your new book? Okay. So um, so this gets us back to the weird people problem. And so I had mentioned that uh, in in putting together that data for the weird people paper, which was basically a methodological contribution, we found all this variation around the world. And it bothered me that all we could do is say, hey, look, there's all this interesting variation because I want to explain the variation. So then for basically the last 10 years, I've been working on trying to explain both how do we account for at least some of this global variation in psychological differences, psychological differences, and um, 
how can we explain how it is that Europe seems to come out at the extreme end of this distribution, Europe and European descent societies. So the US, New Zealand, Australia, Canada. Um, and so that's what the book's about. It poses a couple of questions. One is the, or there are three, the, the first two are the ones I just told you, why are Europeans unusual and how do we account for global variation? And the third, I think that this is all connected to um, what's called the rise of the West. So it's a problem in economics. It's the basic question that Adam Smith had in 1776 and the wealth of nations. Uh, so why are some nations rich and some nations poor? Another way to look at it is why did the industrial revolution start in Europe and specifically England? Uh, and so the part of the psychological case is that there was a lot of psychological differences in Europe prior to the industrial revolution that allowed the kind of forms and institutions, democracy, uh, high levels of innovation that eventually drove the industrial revolution. But the key then was to explain the psychological variation. And that has a few different parts to it, but perhaps the most uh, surprising for people uh, and the first thing to happen was that I make the case that this all started when the, the, the church, the branch of, religion, of uh, Christianity that eventually becomes the Roman Catholic Church got this strange set of ideas in its head that, um, uh, about marriage and the family. So they became obsessed with creating monogamous nuclear families. So they have these taboos against incest. But this was like marriage to any cousins, distant cousins, in-laws, uh, godchildren. And so they just kept making it harder and harder to, for people to marry in their communities. And they forced people to marry outside their communities. They banned polygyny. They had inheritance only by testament or not. not I mean, they encouraged inheritance, uh, inheritance by testament. And all of this scrambles the normal kinship systems and family structures that you find uh, in pre-Christian Europe but that you also find all around the world as the Europeans expanded around the world. So one of the ways people adapted and increased cooperation was by extending their kin ties in various ways, by building dense and interconnected social networks. This is related to stuff that psychologists work on. So this, is, this ends up being the kind of collectivism, individualism spectrum. Uh, so if you want to be able to be collectivist, you have lots of have tight social networks. And just as an empirical fact, those tight networks are usually built out of kin-based networks around the world. So this is fascinating, and I actually hadn't heard uh, this argument, at, at least not in this way, of the kind of key role that the early church played. So I'm just curious, what was their interest in promoting that? Did they have like an immediate strategic reason to do it? Um, was it was there some sort of like religious doctrine? What was it? So um, there's uh, a couple different arguments here, but I think, I mean, the place where I like to start, so this is kind of the cultural evolutionary point of view, which is to say, it's a typical thing would be to focus on and try to understand the incentives of the individuals and what's going on there. And that's good. We should do that. But I think first we should zoom out and um, think about what's going on in lots of other religions at the time. So over in what's now Iran, Persia, we have Zoroastrianism. And Zoroastrianism has doctrines about marrying close relatives, and they're actually encouraging brother-siblings incest. There's probably not very much brother-sibling marriage within regular people, but at least at the elite levels, brothers and sisters are marrying. Uh, Islam has uh, preferred, they end up with a system that gives preferred marriage between parallel cousins, which is almost unheard of elsewhere in the world. And they have limited polygyny. So they have, you can have up to four wives, they're treated equally. Um, and, you know, Judaism has uncle-niece marriage and, you know, there's some 
a few other interesting things about Judaism. But you can think of this as different religious traditions experimenting with different ways to manage the family. And I think of the uh, specifically what becomes the Roman Catholic Church had this super extreme thing with all this extreme incest taboos, which you don't see even in the Orthodox Church. And so part of the story is that they're just doing different stuff, and this is and history sorts it all out. And in this case, 90% of Christians are descended from the Roman Catholic tradition, right? All Protestants and, and all the Catholics. Uh, but that's just because they were the most successful ones. At the time, if you had gone back to 600 CE, you would have thought that it would, maybe would have been Orthodox because that was still Rome, right? Rome fell in the West and continued in the East in Byzantium. Uh, but that doesn't actually go anywhere. Neither does Nestorian Christianity or uh, Syria Christianity, Chaldean Christianity all remain relatively small. So on that account, it would be just sort of a lucky accident that there was experimentation with different methods. It, it was a, a lucky accident, and uh, but these policies ended up benefiting the church. So it does create an inflow. So for example, one of the things the church figured out how to do was, I mean, they they sold they sold people the opportunity to marry their cousins. So one argument would be Europeans didn't want to marry their cousins. Well, we know they did because they paid for it because they could pay the church in a dispensation in order to marry their cousins. Um, the church wouldn't let you pay to have second wives, but you could pay to have an annulment to divorce your first wife so you could get a second wife. That's amazing. I, I love this as a, the, the, the control of this is basically like a money-making opportunity, right? You know, forbid things and then sell people the opportunity to do them. <laughs> well, and then you'll, if you like that kind of stuff, you'll like this next one, which is uh, the church figured out how to get rich people to give them a lot of money because so Jesus says this, he makes this statement to this rich man who comes to him and says, you know, what can I do, Jesus? And he says, well, you have to give away all your wealth and come and be with me. And the, he, that man had great possessions. And so he went off all sad. And then Jesus says, you know, disciples, it's going to be harder for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And uh, Ambrose in Milan and then uh, other, other big church leaders convinced the wealthy that if they want to get to heaven, they've got to give away all their wealth. But of course, the elites don't want to give away all their wealth, but you can give it all away at your death, which avoids all the inconvenience of being poor during your life. And you still get the tre treasure in heaven is what, what Jesus promised. Uh, and, and so the church gets, you know, it becomes the largest landowner in Europe. And, you know, after 500 years of this policy, we're old dying people on their deathbeds just keep giving them land. Uh, what what role does does science play in this in in the history of Christianity, but also in um, in the 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 ascendance of the West? Uh, is there is there at all a connection uh, between what you're describing is like a, a, a key feature of of uh, the Roman Catholic Church is kind of uh, uh, emphasis on uh, monogamy uh, and, and 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 strong incest taboos and and the development of science or the Enlightenment. Yeah, so um, I don't spend a lot of time on that, but I do have one chapter towards the end, end of the book that deals with a lot of these. And what I'm trying to get people to do in that chapter is to realize that if you think about science, it's heavily influenced by your cultural psychology. So one of the distinctions that psychologists make uh, is between analytic and holistic cog cognition. And an analytic cognition, if you want to explain something, you break it down into small parts and you explain the properties of the parts. So if you think about what physics is doing, they, they're still breaking stuff down into smaller parts, and they give the parts properties, and those properties explain the behavior of the system. If you look at economists, they give people preferences, and those preferences are aggregating utility function, and you get behavior. Psychologists give people personalities. 
Um, and these are all considered attributes of the of the individual or the object, and then it explains properties. Whereas a holistic thinker thinks about the relationships between things and uh, tends not to think linearly. And there's a, a bunch of other properties to it. But I think if you look at science, there you know there was this strong analytic thinking. Uh, another part of my story is voluntary associations. So one of the things that makes science unique is that people get together in groups and they become judges for each other. And so there's all these scientific societies uh, appearing, and I actually have graphs of this in the book, uh, the number of different scientific societies over time. And these, they're, this is like the beginning of peer review, basically. You send out a letter to your buddy, you're explaining your new idea, they copy it down, they mail it to a bunch of other people, you kind of claim the idea that way, it's called the Republic of Letters. And so they're establishing epistemic norms and really the culture of science. Now, I think this is harder to happen in other places because they didn't have all these voluntary associations. So in Europe during the high Middle Ages and then you know on through into the early modern period, you're getting guilds and universities and all these different groups where people come together with shared interests because all of their families and clans and things that tie them to where they're from are being broken down by the church constantly. So they, they, they sort of form new kinds of social organizations. And one of these are these scientific societies. There's another another point that I make too about uh, law and um, the notion that the universe is law governed, and that uh, so this is something that I think appeals to the particular um, kinds of psychology that we're developing, and you can see it in how people were doing the actual practice of law itself in having um, rather than trying to adjudicate between parties and worry about relationships, people were you know, either something was right or was wrong, and we had to make a decision about justice. And I, I provide various kinds of cross-cultural evidence about this. Uh, but then this gets applied to physics, that the idea that the, the universe is governed by laws, the universe didn't happen to be governed by laws. But if you go out into the world assuming, well, this must be law governed, we got to figure out what they are, you have a chance of finding what the laws are. If, you, if it doesn't occur to you that the universe is law governed, then you don't go down that road. So I think, again, this is the case where the cultural psychology takes you some distance. One other bit of, of cultural psychology that's relevant here is uh, lack of deference to authority. So across societies, one of the things that varies with the individualist the collectivist divide is how much you defer to great sages, to the elders in your community, all that kind of thing. And somewhere around 1500 or something, Europeans realized that Aristotle and all those ancients were wrong about a great many things. And it was no longer your stuff wasn't mentioned, measured as to how well it fulfilled something Aristotle said or something from the past, it was perfectly fine to, to come up with an idea that those guys were wrong. Whereas elsewhere, you know, it was always going back, rereading Confucius, memorizing the ancient texts, and that was a source of knowledge. But the Europeans lost respect for, for old knowledge, at least relative to other societies. But not, uh, it's not an interesting point, because you, your thesis is that the church plays a, a, a really important role here, but uh, it's very hard to contradict the church. That's right, Protestantism. So they, that's they did. <laughs> Protestantism is, is is the natural consequence of this psychology, right? I mean, Protestantism is an arrogant religion, right? It believes that individuals can read the Bible for themselves and come to know God. And this is something you wouldn't find in any other tradition. You've got to, like, talk to the priests and the specialists and the temple leaders and the elders and stuff. But in Protestantism, you can just read that book and it comes to you. Um, I wonder. Uh, I want to. I want to dig deeper a little bit because this is. I find this so fascinating. But I'm also out of my beer. How, how are you guys doing uh, with beverages? Uh, I. I think I could use a refill. So why don't we take a like five minute break and then meet up here. 
So, Mickey, we're sponsored again this week by The Great Courses Plus, a returning sponsor. Now, The Great Courses Plus, what is that? It's basically an educational streaming service. So it's a way for you to take courses, which allow you to learn from actual experts, uh, so experts in a topic area who are amazing teachers uh, and who cover all sorts of interesting uh, material. So these are people who spent years uh, studying their topics and who know how to really teach and engage with an audience. And we have a featured course that we can recommend, right? Right. So we highly recommend the course, The Intelligent Brain. And as you've just mentioned, I mean, it's hard to argue with the, the professor here, Richard Heyer, who is uh, one of the world's foremost experts on intelligence, the, the modern science of intelligence. And, uh, you know, this is a fascinating course uh, with all kinds of different lectures on various topics. So, um, you know, some of them are controversial. So, you know, sex, potential sex differences in, in components of intelligence. Um, uh, but also really, I think, some uplifting kinds of possibilities. So, for example, the possibility that we're actually getting smarter over time. So delving into the topic of the Flynn effect, named after uh, the psychologist James Flynn. Um, so I think there's a really, really cool course, and uh, I highly recommend our listeners that check it out. And of course, if intelligence isn't your thing, uh, The Great Courses Plus has an enormous selection of subjects. So doubtless, you'll find something there of interest to you. Uh, they have courses on anything from economics to astrophysics uh, to music. So really anything you might be interested in, they likely have a course for. And their app makes it really easy to learn anytime, anywhere that you have a few minutes. You can also stream to your TV if you're in more of a sit down and learn mode. So they make the streaming component here makes it really easy to do courses wherever, whenever fits into your schedule. And, you know, really, you know, join us and see for yourself. Sign up for the Great Courses Plus today. And right now, our listeners can get a free trial of unlimited access to the entire library. So that's, you know, uh, uh, the intelligent brain on every other course uh, you might imagine. Um, and, you know, access to any of these courses are free for, 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 for those who join. So don't wait. Sign up today using our special URL. To start your free trial at The Great Courses Plus, uh, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash beers. Uh, again, that's the Great Courses Plus slash beers. And we want to thank the Great Courses Plus for sponsoring this episode. Can we turn it down? I say ain't no music on. She 
She said, no, that weed is loud. Nigga, we ballin'. Trey swaggin', lost heart, but I'm maintainin'. I've been told that I'm amazing. Make sure to keep that fire blazing. We livin'. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're both on Twitter at four beers pod. You can at mention us. You can DM us. That will go uh, to both of us. If you'd like to email us, our email address for the show is four pod at gmail.com. Again, uh, that email will forward to both of us. And uh, our website, uh, courtesy of David Pizarro, is fourbeers.com. So you can go there to listen to our back catalog uh, of episodes or uh, to drop us a line using the web contact form there as well. Mickey, have we left anything out? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I think we're good. We, I guess we could just like uh, maybe uh, mention what we're, we're drinking and then what can you uh, speaking with Joe? Yes, Mickey, what are you drinking? So um, I actually had a big bottle of, of the, the Jelly King, so I'm not quite finished, but I'm going to finish that. And I decided to follow you, Yoel, and I'm doing uh, a Suntory uh, whiskey, a Japanese whiskey. Um, oh, very nice. Do you have ice in there, though? I do. I do. Disapprove. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a bad human. Uh, what, what are you What are you drinking, Yoel? Uh, well, I uh, emptied the bottle of bourbon, but it is, uh, it's not in my stomach yet. It's in my glass. So as promised, it's been, you know, decanted. Now I just have to finish it. All right, excellent. And uh, Joe? I, I have a perpetual IPA. It's an imperial pale ale, apparently. Perpetual? Does that mean like it's self-filling? Uh, yeah, I'll <laughs> let you know. I'm, I'm just getting ready to sample it. It's like the less known Brian Wansink study. The bottomless beer bottle. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> that would be a great study right there. That, I, mean, I, would, I would definitely participate in that study. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, let's get back to serious business here. Um, so um, I'm, actually not, I'm not sure we actually even mentioned the name of, of the, your new book that's coming out of September. It's called The Weirdest People in the World, uh, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. So we were, we were talking about that. Um, and, uh, you know, if I to summarize your thesis, uh, you're suggesting, at least in terms of the, uh, the second bit of that subtitle, how the West became particularly prosperous, you're suggesting um, that the Roman Catholic Church played a, a really, really prominent role. Um, so now, it occurred to me uh, that, uh, I guess, someone else from your guild, uh, another anthropologist, uh, Jared Diamond, has also tried to cover some of this territory by... By that I mean, he asked the question, you know, uh, why why was the West uh, the successful nation or the successful uh, you know part of the world and not uh, Asia, not Africa, uh, not uh, North America? Um, and he, uh, you know, perhaps his analysis was at a different level, but his again to summarize his answer, I believe he said it's also luck, um, but most had to do with geography. You know, be, you know, that particular part of the globe was conducive to uh, certain forms of agriculture, and agriculture developed, uh, I guess, in uh, Mesopotamia, and then, you know, very close to, to, to Europe, and that's how this all began. Um, so, first, what do you make of his uh, his thesis, and how, do, how does yours square with his? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of Jared Diamond's books, and especially Guns, Germs, and Steel. It was a real inspiration. Uh, in fact, when I the first course I taught, I had a special opportunity as a graduate student. I taught Guns, Germs, and Steel, and actually had Diamond come and, and talk at the last class, so that was great. Um, so I deal with this in the last chapter, and I think he's largely right. I mean, I think he's got the main line of the correct argument 
for the world up until about a thousand CE. And uh, if, you know, the big thing his book says is that you should expect the most complex and successful societies to appear in Eurasia. And particularly along what Ian Morris, who's another historian, has written about this, calls the lucky latitudes. And so those are latitudes that run uh, through the Yellow River in China, uh, through parts of India, and then into Mesopotamia and the Mediterranean. And that's where you see really complex societies starting early, agriculture, and then those societies um, uh, lead the world economically for a long period of time. And the reason I like a thousand is there are powerful Islamic societies who are writing lots of stuff down. And around around 1068, there are some Islamic historians, uh, social scientists, kind of our counterparts, who were writing about how, you know, in the civilized world, you have the Egyptians who contributed, um, the Persians, the Jews, these are all important contributors. But, you know, the people who really haven't contributed are the, the black barbarians in the south and the white barbarians in the north. And the white barbarians are, you know, the English and the Dutch and, and, and folks like that. So, you know, that's the world about a thousand C, pretty much what Jerry predicts. What he doesn't predict is that there'll be highly successful, economically prosperous societies that eventually conquer the world from this north eastern corner of Europe, which gets agriculture relatively late in the Eurasian perspective. They get it not late compared to Oceania and places other, you know, Australia never gets it. Uh, but in the Eurasian context, it gets it late. So the question is, why did this remote corner of Eurasia, this place that was a backwater in a thousand, end up becoming the populations that expand all over the world, split the atom, fly through the sky in aluminum tubes, get sludge out of the world and turn it into power to light up cities and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, so, so I consider my story following on his and, and completing, the, completing the narrative. Um, so it's, it's, this has struck me as, as you're speaking, um, and that is that uh, you know earlier in earlier our conversation we were talking about uh, evolution, evolutionary theory, um, and again you know someone who's very prominent uh, uh, historically is, is Richard Dawkins, who's you know very you know I, I love that book, The Self of Gene, beautifully written, but he's also become very very well known for something else, which is you know uh, being an atheist, an outspoken atheist, and you know I, I hope I'm not. Um, Simplifying his argument too much, but it seems like he thinks religion is good for nothing. Uh, perhaps that's that's too strong. Um, I mean, he clearly thinks nowadays it should be gotten rid of, um, but I'm not sure how much respect he pays to it. Uh, you know, uh, even in the past. So, what are your thoughts? I mean, you must hate this argument. But I mean, what, are, what what are your thoughts of, of you know the arguments he's he put forward in the past? Have you have you spoken to him about this stuff? Um, I haven't spoken to him in too much detail, although he did come to UBC when I was there and Arnor and Zion and myself and Azim Sharif pinned him down for probably half an hour and gave him our point of view. Um, you know, he was, he's a, he's a gentleman, uh, uh, Englishman. So it was all very polite and, uh, uh, fun. Um, he, uh, he, he, when we told him about Ara's priming experiments where he unconsciously reminded people of God and found that religious people offered more in these anonymous giving games called dictator games, he immediately asked if we controlled for IQ. Um, of course, people were randomly assigned, so it's not too many IQ worries. But uh, that's, that's, I mean, I think that captures uh, Diamond's thinking on that. I mean, not Diamond's thinking, Dawkins is thinking on this. So, I mean, I guess I agree with Dawkins and the kind of 
big picture, you know, is religion true? Do we have evidence for supernatural beings? I just think that cultural evolution has put all those kinds of, the fact that humans can believe in all that stuff, put that stuff to work and used it to construct increasingly complex and large societies. So if you have, you believe in an invisible being who's going to punish you or sanction you or reward you for certain kinds of behaviors, that's a way to get people to not do stuff or to do stuff that you need them to do. It could be doing something cooperative. It could be stealing a little bit less from your neighbors. Uh, but at the margins, then it gives your society an advantage. I think even in the smallest scale human societies, participation in ritual. So there's a lot of research from social psychology and elsewhere now showing the power of ritual to build social bonds and bring people together. Cultural evolution figured out that trick a long time ago. And groups have these elaborate rituals, especially they'll they'll bind the community, but they'll also put young men through rites of terror. That when you co-experience terrifying rites with other people, you bond to those people in deep ways. So culture figured out how to permanently create lifelong bonds between young men who then go off to live in different groups. But then when our two groups meet, oh, you're like, oh, there's Mickey. I remember him. And then suddenly we can not fight or at least have a chance at not fighting where we might have fought otherwise. And so it's a way to build alliances and uh, find mates and things like that. Right. So uh, Mickey, your former student, Nick Hobson, has done some of that, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, I think inspired by by some of your work, uh, Joe, and, and Ara's work and... Um, uh, a former guest on our show, uh, Ted Slingerland, as well. I know your your, your former colleagues with. Um, yeah, we did some work on ritual, and and we got a, a, a Demetrius uh, Zigalatis uh, as a co-author. So yeah, very much inspired uh, by this approach. And this maybe is a good segue to talk about you know uh, another yet another uh, a line of research. Well, which, wait, which... sorry, sorry. Can we? Um, I I want one more question about the new book, and then we yeah. can we can move on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. The last question that occurred to me just hearing you uh, describe the the kind of central idea of this book is, I wonder if you've gotten any political pushback, because it seems like to some folks, um, maybe some of them in anthropology, ascribing the undisputed kind of material success of Europe to anything positive about Europeans is sort of politically incorrect, right? So the, the answer for why is Europe so successful is they were really good at killing people and taking their shit, basically. And I, I wonder if anybody's objected to the arguments that you're making saying, well, you're, you know, you can't say that Europeans had these good qualities and that led to their success. Yeah, I mean, uh, in the audience I've spoken to, so I've given lots of talks on this from Santa Barbara to Zurich, um, and I haven't gotten that kind of pushback. But, I mean, I'm trained in cultural anthropology. I, uh, that pushback is going to come. Um, I try to anticipate it in the book by, for one thing, a lot of the uh, traits, psychological traits that I point out as I'm going through the book can be framed in different ways. So, for example, in the initial place where I'm introducing the psychological variation, I have one subsection called weird people are bad friends. Um, and then I discuss this research using vignettes where people, uh, it's called the passenger's dilemma. So you're riding in a car with a friend, your friend is driving recklessly, he hits and kills someone, there's a legal case and you have an opportunity to testify. And you can either lie in court for your friend or refuse to testify. And, you know, there's high variation across populations in people's willingness to testify. And where people generally say that they would uh, not testify and not lie in court. 
um, because they they would want to help. You know, uh, they would not. You know, apparently they'd be unwilling to help their friend. So helping a friend is certainly a virtue. And so you have a virtue trade-off, and it just depends on which virtue you prefer. Um, lots of ch- times, you know, nepotism is, is a negative term, but uh, lots of people who only hire relatives, for example, which I talk about in the book, corporate executives who hire relatives, they think they're it's a smart way to get a good employee, not a bad thing, right? So, you know, there's many, there's many, I, so I try to, as I go through the book, kind of look at these things from different sides. And then by the end, I, I try to take this question you brought up about, well, maybe Europeans are just evil. But the problem is, is there's no shortage of evil across history. It's just that you got to have the tools, technology and social organization to be able to go plunder a place. And, you know, Europeans invented, you know, or they had powerful guns, they had cannons, they had, you know, all this weaponry, complex forms of social organization, productive economies, which is what allowed them to do as much damage as they did when they expand across the world. Right. Um, okay, Mickey, do you want to move on to the question that you were trying to ask before I cut you off? Yeah, well, I, I'm, you know, you, I, well, I want to just compliment you on your question because I'm, I'm just kind of thinking about it as well. Because it's not just, your argument is not just that Europe, you know, it, well, you know, is better, but like Christianity specifically, Catholicism specifically is better. And, and I can imagine, you know, so there, there are some places in the world that are, you know, still developing. Um, and there are, you know, I'm thinking of Africa specifically, where there are actually competition um, among, uh, let's say, Islam and, 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 and Christianity uh, for adherence. And I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I suppose someone could say, your approach would, you know, would 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 suggest, um, you know, uh, developing nations would be better off adopting something like uh, Christianity than, let's say, Islam. So I got to correct you right off, which is that uh, I, I didn't say it was better. I mean, unless you mean better for killing people and building Gatling guns. And so it all depends on your values. Right. So if you put values on having highly economically productive economies, then, yeah. So I think it is better for that. But if your value is having a population that adheres to certain cultural practices, doesn't allow women to wear certain kinds of clothes, maintains a segregation between males and females, uh, people lead a quiet life of introspection, it's not so good for that. People defer to elders, not good for that. Right. Um, okay, fair enough. Okay, so I will uh, uh, go to the question on, yeah, the, 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 we, we talked about it already, about uh, your work on the, uh, on, on the big gods hypothesis, your work with Aaron Noren Zion, Azim Sharif, uh, I think Steve Heine as well. Um, uh, so I wonder if you could, I think you've started, but I wonder if you could tell us, you know, the, just the, 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 what the thesis is of this kind of this big gods hypothesis, um, and then we can go from there. Sure, sure. So I, I alluded to it before, but the, the core idea is something that I think a lot of people who work on the cognitive science of religion have been working on, and there's a lot of evidence for it, that there's there are things about human minds which make us susceptible to believing in certain kinds of supernatural agents, uh, for being affected by these ritual practices in the way we talked about, and that our addition to that body of work, which Parr and others have contributed to, is that these things may be deployed at the group level, we talked about group selection before, that groups may come to have packages of rituals and supernatural beliefs and agents, forms of social organization that uh, are wound together in ways that give that group an advantage in competing against others. So they're able to be more cooperative. 
And so some of our research that's of most interest to psychologists is looking at either correlations or experimental manipulations where we can show that people who believe in a more punishing God, who's more concerned about, say, how you treat strangers or co-religionists, people are more cooperative in experimental games or they commit fewer crimes or are economically more productive in some other way. Right. Um, So... Okay, so now uh, I want to talk a little bit about a controversy that uh, I, I, you were involved with last year. Uh, there was a big, big paper uh, that came out, I believe it was Nature, um, led by Harvey Whitehouse, a big group of, of authors. And the headline, I remember seeing the headline, I was startled. Cause it was like, isn't that the exact opposite of, of, of the thesis you just laid out? And I, I believe their analysis suggested, uh, you know, ostensibly they found that um, moralizing gods, punishing gods, uh, appeared after the formation of complex societies, not before. Because your hypothesis is that um, these punishing gods are uh, punishing gods are what allowed the formation of these complex societies. So I wonder if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about the controversy. Well, yeah. So let me first clarify the theory, though. So. Um, what we, what the case we make, the thing with cultural evolution is you always have to think about a population process occurring through time. So the, the gods can help you scale up in size and complexity, but the problem with complex societies is they tend to fall apart. So another function we discuss in our, in our BBS paper is that these gods may help maintain, they may make the society more stable, less likely to fall apart. And I mean, the first, the first abstract of that paper causes me pain because they missed that whole part. They actually have evidence for the second part of the hypotheses that the big gods help keep the society stable. They just don't have evidence for the first part. So when we saw that, uh, there was a couple of things in their analysis which, with, that bothered us. So the size of, so they didn't, they didn't give their um, coefficients as odds ratios or something that's easily interpretable by humans. It's just presented as uh, the coefficients in a logistic regression, which unless you're, you know how to raise stuff to the E power in your head, most, pe- most people can't do. And so when we looked at that, they were sort of disturbingly large. And so we got the data and we put together a little research group and we started going through a lot of their code and stuff. And what we found is that at one point in the code, they take missing data. So they get the, you get the original data set from, the, from Sushat and it has all these NAs, so not available data. And there's a line in the code, and you know it's great that they provided our code because we can point to the code, uh, uh, you know we can go right to the code, which changes all those NAs to zeros, which means they turned an absence of evidence into evidence of absence, and those are mostly in the early part of the record. So you have no information. We don't know whether they have big gods or small gods. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And then suddenly the first incidents where there's evidence is almost always a one. There's one exception to that rule in the whole in the whole data set where it's a zero and then a one. And so that meant that all the zeros that had suddenly led up to ones, is actually no evidence, no evidence, no evidence, and then there was a big god. So you don't know how far back those go. And there's kind of a basic principle of um, from archaeology or paleoanthropology that the first incidents, the first time you see a species or the first time you see a, a material trait in the, in the archaeological record, can't be the earliest time that thing appears, right? The chance that you happen to found the first appearance is pretty low. So you know that it's earlier. Um, so we did a variety of analyses. Like we said, well, what if we assume that these, these are just 100 years earlier, which is the smallest data increment? If you do that, then, then the result flips around and you get the opposite. You get big gods precede the rise. So it's super sensitive to the, to the data integrity question. 
Um, so then we wrote this document up and sent it into nature. Uh, and it's, it's still under the, there's some stuff going on. I, we, we've never been able to figure out what's going on, but it's still in process. And this is a year ago, right? That this, that this yeah. paper came out. Wow. And have you, I imagine your, your contemporaries and maybe friends with Harvey Whitehouse. I'm not sure. Have you, what is his response? Um, I've never, so, uh, there's been a lot, like tons of back and forth and I'm not sure how to summarize it. Uh, at, at the most, the most recent thing we've gotten from that research team is that they're, um, that they said they made two mistakes, which, which compensated for each other. So they meant to make all those NAs imputed absences, uh, which is, I guess, some kind of intermediate case where the experts agree that we can assume there's no gods there. Uh, we make we bring together we bring to bear other evidence that suggests that those are very unlikely to be um, imputed absences, at least all of them. So, uh, I mean, one obvious case is, Poly is Polynesia, Hawaii. So you go to look at the Hawaii data, and it's no moralizing gods until uh, Cook arrives, and then Cook arrives, and suddenly because there's no written record prior to that. So it. Uh, so. Uh, it's I so I wish I had a clearer story, but that's because it's not clear to me what what exactly is going on uh, on their side of it. Okay, equation. so it's, it sounds like it's still ongoing and still to be resolved. Yes. So uh, nature is taking a long time to adjudicate it. Uh, we got back reviews from our uh, from our commentary. The reviews said this is all right, and um, so then we were asked to revise our commentary. And now we've sent in our revised commentary based on their feedback from the reviewers. Uh, and then it's been sitting for, for five months or something. This is, by the way, what our listeners tune in for is <laughs> in-depth details about <laughs> academic fights and the review process. Every month or so, we ping the editor at Nature and they say, we're working on it. So. Right. Yeah. You know, it's funny, like not saying anything about this team in particular, because to be honest, I'm not that familiar with the ins and outs of this dispute, but this pattern of like somebody does something and it's clearly a mistake, right? You can't say, we don't know what that was. We're going to assume it's a zero. And then you call them out on that and they're like, yeah, fair enough. That was a mistake, but it just happens that cancels out for some other reasons. And it's totally cool. It's like, really? I mean, that just seems like a, uh, own up to the fact that like originally that's kind of a fuck up and that maybe should like sink the whole thing to start with. And then how likely is it really that it just happens that yes, it was an error, but it's okay for other reasons. It's perfectly compensating. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I mean, part of it is the pressure. So I, the, the place I think we need to go with this is, you know, we want open science. We want the code to be available. We want all the data to be available, but then if somebody finds a mistake, it should be okay to go, okay, we goofed, you know, let's just retract the paper. We'll re go at it again and we'll give it another shot. Like, but it, you know, that's like such a horrible thing to do in, in our world that, um, that we need a norm readjustment where, you know, you put your best into it, but if you made a mistake, you just admit it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I totally think this goes along with, um, posting data and materials where, yeah, you do that. It's more likely people are going to catch your mistakes, but we should be incentivizing that right? The alternative is it's not possible to catch people's mistakes. That's obviously bad. Yeah. And I should say I have great respect for Harvey Whitehouse and Peter Turchin. Uh, they're excellent scholars. Uh, Pat Savage, who has also worked on that project, lead author, great scholars, you know, 
definitely want him in the field. I, I think they goofed on this one. I want to ask you about your first book uh, called The Secret of Our Success, How Culture is Driving Human Evolution, Domesticating Our Species, and Making Us Smarter. So I read this, uh, I think I read it when it first came out uh, a few years ago now, and I, I, I bought it, uh, I think I read it over a Christmas break, and I'm not a, actually a very quick reader, it takes me a while, and I just zip through that. It was just such a pleasure to read. Um, it changed the way I thought uh, about uh, about psychology and evolution. So I highly recommend it to our to our listeners. Um, but I wonder if you could, uh, you know, the start of the book, you kind of, you start with what I think is a guiding assumption for many of us, which is, well, the secret of our success, that's clear. We've got this big, massive brain. Um, we're just smarter. And that's why we've dominated this planet. Um, but you argue something else. So I wonder if you can kind of walk us through the argument. Yeah. So I make the case that uh, a lot of what we think is our innate smarts that goes along with our big brains is actually information we learn, sort of pre-built solutions. So what we really are is good social learners, and we rely on this accumulated body of knowledge, know-how, language, bits of grammar, um, mental tools for thinking. So something like the wheel or how to make a screw or a pulley system are things that are very hard to figure out the first time. So the wheel is never invented on the other continents except for Eurasia. It's invented late in human history. Uh, but once you see a wheel working, you can figure out all kinds of new ways to use it. So you can put wheels on carts, and then people immediately use them for pottery wheels, and eventually you can use them to uh, mill wheels and water wheels and all, all kinds of interesting stuff. Uh, so the idea is that we are, we're smart because we have this accumulated set of tools in our heads. So mathematics is the same way. Lots of societies count one, two, three, many. Um, but we have this counting system which allows us to count without bounds, and we can do cognitive gymnastics compared to uh, folks that don't have that tool in the same way, whenever you have a tool that's the right tool for the right problem, you, you know, you can you can do a lot better than if, if you don't. So, you know, as you were speaking, I was just thinking this uh, kind of frightening thought. I mean, this is like a, 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 a exceedingly unlikely scenario. But isn't your thesis also very, very scary in the sense that you know, we could lose these tools. It's possible to lose these tools. I mean, it's hard to imagine. We've got the books, you know, everything's recorded digitally, um, but it's it's not impossible. Uh, so is, is it scary at all? Well, I mean, I think that's the real possibility. And there's reason to think that that's happened a number of times over human history. So in the book, I tried out some of these cases from small scale societies. So famously in uh, Tasmania, which is this island off the coast of southern Australia, uh, once the o when the oceans rise at the beginning of the Holocene, uh, it floods the Bass Strait, which is the 150-kilometer strait between Victoria and Tasmania. And Tasmania gets isolated for 10,000 years. And it separated from the kind of collective brain of Australia, it gradually begins to lose valuable tools. They stop fishing. Their spears get less complicated. They lose bone tools. Um, so by the time Abel Talsman and later James Cook arrive, they have the simplest technology of any population that, that's ever been encountered. In fact, their technology looks kind of Neanderthal, right? So it looks like this cousin species that lived in Europe 40,000 years ago or something like that. So it, what explains that sort of regression? Because naively you would think, well, once you know how to fish, how, how are you going to forget? Well, that's a matter of some debate. But part of the idea is that what preserves uh, cultural knowledge 
is that you know every time you make a copy of something, it can become a little bit worse. But if humans are selective about who they pay attention to, then you can pick the person who's the best in the previous generation, learn from them. And even if you slide a little bit, you're still getting the best version or a copy of the best version from the previous generation. So if the population's big, this generates improvement over time. But if the population shrinks, then you can actually get to a point where you'll begin to lose a little bit of knowledge each generation. The best person in the young guys is not quite as good as the best person in the older generation. And then so on down through the generation. So slowly knowledge ebbs away. And you might imagine it working like, uh, well, you know, each time the fishing spears are getting worse, but then finally they're so bad that the fishing doesn't pay off anymore. So, I mean, you still know there's fish and you could try to spear it, but it's just not very efficient. So you just drop the fishing entirely and do something that's slightly more productive. That kind of thing. Right. So this is uh, is so funny because this ties into a conversation I was having with some friends um, the other day. Well, I'll admit it, uh, a little bit high. So maybe this doesn't make any sense. But um, so what we were talking about was like, you know, civilizational collapse. We had recently read this book about, you know, end of the world pandemic sort of stuff. And the idea of, well, let's say if we don't have electricity and we don't have manufacturing, can we just go back to something simpler? It's like, what I was thinking was, maybe not, because like, who still remembers how to do that stuff, right? If you have a sheep, do you know how to like, shear him and spin his like a fur into wool and and make a shirt out of it? Like, who still knows how to do that? I mean, this is a core idea in The Secret of Our Success. So my third chapter is called Lost European Explorers. And it has Europeans that get stranded in the Arctic or in Australia or in uh, the islands off the coast of Texas. And then they have to survive. And, you know, in some cases, these are real outdoorsmen, but they don't know how to find food, build shelter, make fires, travel, and they just flounder. And that's because humans, unlike other primates, are just reliant on this huge body of information. And without that, you know, so it's an interesting thing because the challenge at the beginning of the book is, you know, we have these big brains. We've lived as hunter-gatherers for all this time, but we can't survive as hunter-gatherers. So what's that seems to be a puzzle. And, and then the rest of the book tries to unravel the puzzle. If the world falls apart, I am the first one to go. I, I, I'm, I'm useless other than, you know, podcasting and reading and writing a little well, bit. Well, I mean, the real answer is, you know, if it's like 1% of us left, then we just like loot Canadian Tire for, you know, <laughs> hundreds of years. It's fine. <laughs> Who needs to know how to make a shirt? Um, so, uh, Mickey, you mentioned, I guess, this idea that uh, chimps are smarter than us. I had not heard this before, and I'm very curious to hear this fleshed out a little bit. Sure. So in the second chapter of Secret of Our Success, I, I lay out a couple, a few experiments to kind of challenge the reader on this idea that humans are so smart. And one is this ex- set of experiments, really extensive set of experiments that Mike Tomasello and Esther Herman and some of their colleagues at the Max Planck did. And what they took three species of apes. So they took two and a half year old human children, uh, orangutans and chimpanzees. Pretty big samples, actually, as, as these kind of experiments go. So 100 chimpanzees. And they ran them through a battery of 18 cognitive tests. And they just compared the scores they got on the cognitive tests. All three species like snacks. And so you're rewarded if you do the task correctly, you get the snack. So there's incentives. And on things like using tools and navigating space and calculating number and stuff, the apes uh, are the same as the humans, uh, sometimes edging them out here and there. Uh, The only ones where the two and a half year old children kind of flatten the apes is in learning from others. 
So they're super good at imitation, observational learning. The apes are near floor and the kids are near ceiling. So that's one example. Another example is the one that Mickey mentioned earlier was uh, these memory tests. So they train these apes to use these touch screens that shows you a series of patterns and you got to then tap them out in order. And uh, some of the apes actually outcompete the undergraduates. Uh, but they did it with both Africans and uh, uh, Japanese undergraduates uh, tapping it out. Now, on average, the humans win, although the apes win on speed. The apes are always faster, but the on average, the apes lose in terms of total memory. But there's a few apes that beat the humans. So it's kind of like, well, it's not clearly memory. That's that's the difference. Right. Right. Now, I, I mean, I love that because it has a really like kind of perverse flair to it. I would think like, yeah, how motivated is the average undergraduate? Maybe that ape really wants the snack that uh, they they get as a reward for getting this right. Because like certainly there's humans who have like amazing can do these amazing feats of memory. Right. So it's sure. So, I mean, that, that's so I, 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 I kind of anticipated your, your reaction. So I say, well, the supporters of the humans say this, and then I said some of the stuff you just said, but then the apes might come back and say, well, these humans have been trained in school for years, and we haven't had any schooling. And so then I have a little debate between like the ape supporters, and I'm like, you know, I just basically say, look, I'm not sure who's better here, but it's not an obvious slam dunk for the humans is, is the only, you know, the, leave it at that. And one other fun one is uh, there's this matching pennies game where uh, you have to anticipate what your partner's going to do and do the opposite. And um, so there's a, there's a, you can calculate the Nash equilibrium. So the optimal time you should play left versus play right. And it all depends on the payoffs. Uh, and so the apes zoom in on the Nash equilibrium, which is what the economists would predict you would do. The humans are somehow systematically biased. They miss the Nash. So then there's a the question, why are the humans missing the Nash? And why are they so slow at this? And one reason is, is they may be tending to copy the previous choices of their opponent. Those humans are so inclined to copy that they may be being driven off by the previous choices of their opponent. And one evidence for this that I put forth is they do the rock, paper, scissors game. And when people play rock, paper, scissors, every now and then a thrower throws a little early. And they, you know, so, you, so, the, so the opponent gets to see a glimpse of scissors. And there's a tendency for the other person to play scissors which playing scissors against scissors is idiotic, right? That doesn't help you win the game. You could have played uh, rock, but um, we're just such automatic imitators that we see the scissors and we do scissors, right? So, yeah. That's uh, that's super interesting. And it ties in with a finding where I really only remember the stylized fact and, and maybe you remember more about it. But the idea is that you uh, show, uh, I think it was chimps and also children, a way to get into a box in order to like retrieve a prize that they want. And some of those actions are necessary, but some of them are just superfluous window dressing, right? And the apes are very good at figuring out what they need to do and just doing that and ignoring the other stuff. Whereas the kids do all the other junk as well that they they don't evidently learn that they can just skip that stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's a great experiment. So I discussed that. Um, I make the case that the origins of faith, that humans' willingness to put faith in prior generations comes from the fact that we're, say, putting together complicated tools. And there's all kinds of steps in these tools where I don't know if you have to put the glue here or if you have to heat this tip before you do number step B, but dad does it this way or the best hunter in the village does it this way, so I'm doing it this way. Uh, and so what you're seeing in those kid experiments is that the kids, 
they have a tendency, well, let's copy all the steps. I don't know which of these steps is important. It could be any of them. It could be all of them. Whereas the chimps didn't evolve in a world with complicated cultural practices. So they don't have that over-imitation bias that you see in the kids. Well, uh, Joe, uh, I think we're kind of running out of time here. And uh, I just want to say, you know, I want to thank you for, for, for giving us your time. Uh, but before we go, uh, we like to ask our guests if they want to, you know, we promote anything. So we, we know we'll definitely put uh, the book, your, your multiple book details on our show notes. But is there anything else you'd like to, uh, to tell our listeners uh, to go by or uh, to do? No, no, it's, uh, the, the books would be the, the only thing. All right. Well, listeners, buy the books. Uh, you will not be disappointed. I mean, if, if uh, Secret for Success is any indication of uh, the quality of uh, your your weird book, uh, I'm sure it'll be a delight. Cool. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening.